0: Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And he said to them, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Alicia, for reading our scripture Hey guys, it's been a hot minute since I've preached up here. I feel a little insecure. I don't have my security blanket of my guitar between us, so you'll have to give me some grace. But in the early spring of 2016, I sat down to plan what would be the first public worship gathering of Pillar Church of Okinawa. I was full of excitement and dreams of what God would do here through his people. Our core team hadn't met very often. Literally two weeks prior to this, I had just met in person John Ransom, our planting pastor and founding pastor. We had only exchanged phone calls and emails prior to this. And so I was sitting down and planning things. Interestingly, there's only one family still here with us that was at this first worship gathering because of the military and all the PCS moves. So if you're wondering whether you should take those orders and move, or if you should extend and stay here, here's your answer, stay, extend. (laughs) But I thought long and hard about that first worship gathering and what we would do as a local body of Christ to express our worship to him. I planned out all the different aspects of the flow of service and even the songs that we would sing. My main focus for that meeting was that people would see Jesus, that the people of God gathered at Pillar Church of Okinawa would see and know Jesus. That Sunday came, not too much to think about, but I do remember one of the songs that I planned was the song Man of Sorrows by Hillsong Worship. You know the song? The chorus goes, Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. Where your love poured out over me, now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. We still sing that song to this day. It's a great song about our suffering Savior who paid the debt of our sins by his blood and set us free from the curse of sin and death. We sang that song and I remember it being very powerful in the moment. And then the song ends with a repetition a few times of that last line of the chorus. Praise and honor unto thee. Praise and honor unto thee. Praise and honor unto thee. That was what we wanted. We wanted the people of God gathered at Pillar Church of Okinawa to give honor, praise, and glory to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if anyone else noticed that day. But those weren't the words that inadvertently came out of my mouth. Though the screens read and the people sang, praise and honor unto thee, my voice rang out, praise and honor unto me. That's not what I wanted to sing, but that's what was in my heart. Luke 6.45 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I tend to think too highly of myself. I tend to worship myself we tend to worship ourselves and other things, not giving praise, honor, and glory to Jesus, who is the only one worthy of our adoration and our action. So this morning, we're continuing our sermon series, This is Who We Are. It's about what we value here at Pillar Church of Okinawa and how the gospel has formed us as a church. This morning, we're looking at our Sunday morning gatherings, our worship service, if you will, And I've titled this sermon, Worship, Liturgy, and Knowing Jesus and Making Him Known. That's my outline for this morning as well. I don't have a grand thesis or a big main idea, except I want to show you Jesus. We're going to talk about worship. We're going to talk about liturgy and knowing Jesus and making Him known. It's a super creative title, I know. This sermon is going to be a little bit different than our normal. I want to explain why we do what we do here at Pillar Church of Okinawa during our worship gatherings, hopefully answering the question, hey, why do you guys do that? So before we go on, let's pray. Father, you are a worshiping God and a God worth worshiping. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who came down to us lived a perfect life among us that we couldn't live. Jesus, thank you for willingly giving your life for our rebellion, our sin on that cross, that we may be made righteous. Holy Spirit, speak to us, speak to our heart and open our eyes to you this morning that we may see you, our true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is through Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So what is normal in church? We all have different backgrounds and I'm sure different experiences of what church is supposed to be like, right? I mean, maybe you grew up Lutheran or Anglican, Episcopal, and church to you should be very contemplative, reverent, with an emphasis on the sacraments and the Lord's table. Or maybe you grew up Baptist, Presbyterian, or in one of the Reformed circles, and to you, Church should have great Bible teaching and preaching, or maybe you grew up in the assemblies of God or the church of God in Christ, and for you, church should be extremely emotive and expressive with tons of passion, or maybe you're new to this whole church thing, you have no preconceptions, you have no idea what church is supposed to be like, you have no idea what I'm talking about, welcome, I'm glad you're here, I hope you see Jesus this morning. But what is normal for church? Every church has its strengths. Gordon T. Smith has a great book called Evangelical, Sacramental, and Pentecostal, Why the Church Should Be All Three. And in it, Split Smith explains how churches tend to lean towards one of those two titles over the others. Sacramental churches emphasize the table and sacraments. Evangelical churches emphasize scripture and the preaching of the word. Pentecostal churches emphasize the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to help us walk through not necessarily what is normal for the Big C Church, as there are many faithful expressions of God's family all over the world, even on this island that look completely different from each other. But I want to walk us through what is normal for us here at Pillar Church of Okinawa. We'll take a look at our Luke passage in just a moment to see how our gatherings are structured. But first, we need to take a look at worship and liturgy. Worship is not an event, it's a, not a thing that just happens and then it doesn't. It's not just music or just prayer or gathering. Worship is much larger than what takes place in churches on Sunday mornings. Worship is not limited to specific times and places or activities. Though worship encapsulates all these things, worship is an ongoing, never-ceasing posture of life. My favorite definition of worship is from Harold Best, who was the Dean of the Conservatory of Music for Wheaton College. In his book, Unceasing Worship, Biblical Perspectives on Worship in the Arts, he defines worship this way. He says, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. There's a great number of things that we could unpack in this definition, but I just want to look at two, the unceasing continuous outpouring and our chosen or choosing God. To unpack these two ideas, we first have to take a look at two doctrines that kind of hold them up. The first is the doctrine of the Trinity, and the second is the doctrine of the Imago Dei, or the image of God in us. And don't worry, I'm not going to go too into the weeds on these doctrines, as they're so rich and deep that this sermon can't hold them all. But I do want to hit some wave tops. Our God is a triune God. That is that he has existed as three persons in one for all of time. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In the Trinity, God has perfect community, communion, and worship within himself. Worship didn't originate when he created Adam. Worship had always existed from the beginning. So what is worship? The writer of Hebrews tells us that through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There is adoration and there is action here, an adoration of offering up a sacrifice of praise, acknowledging his name, an action, not neglecting to do good. We see similar ideas in Paul's letter to the Romans, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, in light of all that, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The idea of glory and sacrifice here in Romans is the same adoration and action in Hebrews. We adore something, we give it glory, therefore we act, we sacrifice for it, we worship. During Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There is adoration within the Trinity And Jesus tells his disciples, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There is action within the Trinity. There is adoration, and there is action. There is worship within the Trinity. The Father gives glory to the Son and the Spirit, and he sends them out. The Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father, and he empowers us to do the same and the Son glorifies the Spirit and the Father with his own life. This worship, this adoration and action within the Trinity is unceasing. It never stops. And we are created in his image. We have the Imago Dei in us. It's not that we were made to worship like a popular worship song in the 2000s states. But we were created worshiping. We come out of the womb giving glory to something. We are continually pouring ourselves out. Just as the Father, Son, and Spirit are continually pouring themselves themselves out to the glory of each other. So do we continually pour ourselves out to the glory of something. And in the beginning that something was God. Just like our question from this morning in the New City Catechism, it is right that we who were created by God in his image should live to his glory. In the garden, we glorified God, but then the fall happened. But we didn't cease to worship at the fall. We just redirected it. In the fall, we no longer glorified our creator and acknowledged his name, sacrificed for him, We exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We didn't cease worshiping. All we did was redirect our worship off of our choosing God, the God who chose us before the foundations of the world. We worship ourselves and other things, our chosen gods. We rebel against our true God and give glory to others We all have little G-gods in our lives, our work, our spouse, our hobbies, money, our security. These are things that I would call our functional saviors. They're things that we look to to save us from some perceived hell in our lives, but they're not our true savior of our lives. John Calvin famously quoted as saying, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We take good things and we make them God things. We take them and we put them at the center of our lives because we think that they can fulfill us, fill us, and save us. We have decided to worship a chosen God, not our true choosing God. The epistle of 1 John ends this way. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Jesus is our true God, and when we put other things in front of him, they are idols. And John says we are to keep ourselves from them. But how do we do that? by looking to Jesus, our true God. Here's where we're gonna start looking at why we do what we do here at Pillar Okinawa. Our hope for everyone that walks through those doors is that they would see Jesus here, that they would be pointed to Jesus and see his truth, his goodness, and his beauty. Benjamin Franklin said that, by failing to prepare, we are preparing to fail. Church, we cannot fail in our plan of pointing people to Jesus. And so we have to have a plan. And that plan is our liturgy. I was having coffee once with a worship leader friend. This was the first time I was having coffee with him. And we were just getting to know each other, um, having a conversation and building a relationship. We were talking about our worship services and I was giving him my thoughts. And he said, oh, you're a liturgy guy. Yeah, we don't do that at my church. Now, while I understood what he was trying to say as he came from a more charismatic church, I told him, you absolutely do have a liturgy. You just don't call it that. You try to fit in music and prayer and scripture and teaching. And how you go about fitting all of that in, what you focus on and what you don't focus on, that's your liturgy. The word liturgy comes from two Greek words meaning public and work. Uh, It's literally public service. It's a word that describes the work of the people that happens usually through a ritual or a service of some kind. It's an order of doing things to reach a goal. We see this idea of an order of doing things as it relates to worship and giving glory all throughout the scriptures. In Genesis we see Adam command or we see God commanding Adam of which trees to eat and not each eat. He says Eat this one, don't eat that one, and have communion. God gives a pattern of worship to Israel while they're in the wilderness. In Exodus chapters 19 through 24, and then in First and Second Chronicles, we see David continuing those um, commands and those patterns while they're no longer worshiping in the tabernacle, but they're in the temple with priests and Levites. In all of these, God calls his people to worship, and they respond It's a call and a response. In the New Testament, we see a call to singing, Ephesians 5, prayer, 1 Timothy 2, teaching in Acts 2, discipline in Matthew 18, reading scripture in 1 Timothy 4, collecting tithes in 1 Corinthians 16, and so many more. We have a call and a command to do these things, and then, as John says, to keep ourselves from idols. But how do we fit it all in? How do we keep our focus on Jesus? It's our liturgy. It's knowing Jesus and making him known. Here at Pillar, we have four movements in our liturgy. We have the gathering. We have the word. We have the table and the scattering. It's knowing Jesus and making him known through prayer, singing, community, fellowship, study, discipleship, and proclamation to the church and to the world. This liturgy is built and patterned from our passage this morning in Luke, and it's essentially a call and response. It's a call and response repeated like a conversation. God says something, and then his people respond. He says something again, and his people respond again. So let's take a look at our gathering from Luke in chapters 13 through 24. Here we see Jesus initiates a conversation with two disciples. This is just three days after Christ has been crucified, and they're walking to Emmaus. They're probably talking about the crucifixion. Maybe the empty tomb could be mundane things of life, or they're asking each other what's next. Our Messiah has been crucified. We'll see a bit of what's on their minds and how they respond to Jesus. But I love the phrase, drew near and went with them. In the original language, the tense of that phrase indicates that Jesus has already been walking with them, but the scripture says they don't recognize him. It's an amazing point to ponder itself, how beautiful a truth is it that Jesus walks with us and pursues us even when we don't yet recognize him. When we are in rebellion, he's pursuing us and walking with us. And so he is here with these two disciples. He's walking with them. And then he draws near to them and he initiates a conversation. And he asks, hey, what are you guys talking about? At the beginning of this narrative, the risen Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, invites these two to respond to him. We'll see in a bit that he's going to draw them deeper into spiritual things. But for now, he just invites them to have a conversation And then they respond. You can imagine they've probably had a pretty crappy last couple days. I mean, their teacher, their master, their rabbi was nailed to a criminal's cross three days ago, and now they can't even find the body. We're told that they stood still and looked sad at Jesus' question, but the call is still there to respond. We don't know much about these two disciples, but Cleopas is named, and we know that he wasn't one of the twelve, but Scripture says he was a follower, and he responds to Jesus. He basically says, have you been living under a rock? How do you not know what's been happening in Jerusalem the past couple days? I mean, everybody knows what's happening. Now, some people say that there's no humor in the Scriptures, but I sense there's a bit of humor here when Jesus pretends that he doesn't know what's happened. He says, oh, no, what things? What has happened? And then they proceed to explain to Jesus what has happened to him. I mean, I I find it kind of comical telling Jesus who went through it what has happened to him. Not only do they explain what has happened to Jesus, but by their response, we can see a bit of their misunderstanding of who Jesus really is. It's kind of like when someone sings the lyrics to a song, wrong. You know, they have the tune right, but that's not the words These two disciples here, they have the words right, but they don't have the tune correct. They say he was a man, he was a prophet, his words and deeds were mighty, he was a good man before God and people. They continue then to tell what has happened to him and how he was delivered to condemnation and death on a cross. And then we have a key phrase, they say, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. But now it's been three days since his death. You see, to the Jewish people, the Messiah was going to bring a military victory over Rome. He was going to set them free, much like a second exodus. He was to be like Moses, leading them out of Egypt. Their hope here in verse 21 for the redemption of Israel, is rooted in God's promise to his people during the exodus. In Exodus 6, 6, God promises his people, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Both of the words redeem in the Luke passage and in Exodus, they refer to a passage or a purchase or a buying, a paying a price for something. It's a paying of the ransom price for slavery. In the Exodus, God had freed his people from slavery in Egypt and Moses led them out these two disciples have the same view of Jesus. He was going to bring about a new exodus and free the nation from Rome by a military victory. But instead, Jesus is crucified, and he has proven to be much, much more. Jesus had paid the price, the ransom price, and freed his people from slavery. But the freedom was not through a military victory like it was in Egypt, but it was through his work on the cross, paying the ransom price for his people's slavery to sin. Jesus is the Redeemer who frees us from bondage to sin and death, and that's good news. That is the gospel. Jesus, the God-man, willingly went to the cross to lay down his life, to pay the price for our rebellion. He was the sacrificial lamb. He took on himself the sins of the world and was crucified for us. But not only that, he has dominion over death. He didn't stay dead, he's alive. He's walking with these two disciples on a road, speaking with them. The tomb is empty. It's not just something we celebrate on Easter. It's an everyday reminder that the price was paid We are redeemed, and he is ruling and reigning forever and ever. Amen. But at this point in the story, the two disciples on the road, they don't believe it yet. They say, we had hoped that Jesus would redeem us, but he's been dead now for three days. Some of our women went to the tomb, and the body's not there. Angels told them that he's alive, and even Peter went to check for himself and saw him but we don't believe him. These two disciples don't know who Jesus truly is. They know some facts about the gospel, yes, but they don't know the face of the gospel yet. Here we move into the second movement of our passage in our liturgy, the word. Jesus responds to their explanation of the recent events by kind of chastising them. He calls them foolish and he shows them their unbelief in God's word. He says all of these things were written about. The Messiah had to suffer because God is faithful to his word. And then Jesus walks them through the mother of all Bible studies. The Bible study to end all Bible studies. I mean, can you imagine having Jesus with us, walking us through the scriptures from beginning to end, and it shows how it all points to him, how he is the hero of the story. We can only understand the scripture through this lens. We're not given the context of this Bible study, but maybe he started in Genesis, the first book of Moses. Maybe he spoke of the garden, And how Adam was tempted and sinned, and he brought about curse and death to all of humanity. And maybe how he himself was at a garden at one point, but he said, not my will, but yours be done. And he walked to the cross to break the curse of sin and death and bring about everlasting life. Maybe he spoke of the kingship of David and how there's no earthly king on the throne right now, but Jesus rose to life and would be king and be on the throne forever ruling and reigning. We often come to Jesus with misconceptions of who he is and how we relate to him. It is the scriptures that point us back to the truth. It's the scriptures that show us the truth. Everything is about him. Everything is for him. Everything is to him. It's all about Jesus. The word recenters our life on the hero of the story, Jesus. The hero ain't us. Now let's just take a quick break, take a look at our liturgy. Our worship gatherings here at Pillar Okinawa begin with a call to worship from Scripture. God initiates this conversation with us. He calls us to respond, and so we do. Typically, we respond in prayer, and we rehearse the gospel in song. Here recently, we've been rehearsing God's truths in the New City Catechism. That is our gathering. And then much like a conversation between two people, we stop talking, and God speaks again. God's word, the scriptures are opened and interpreting all things concerning himself, Jesus is proclaimed. God's word is preached and we respond. And here at Pillar Oki, we tend to sing, proclaiming the truths of the gospel, and then we confess in prayer where we have unbelief in our hearts. Much like the father of the boy with the unclean spirit in Mark's gospel, we pray, Jesus, we believe, but help our unbelief. Now back to our narrative. After this amazing Bible study that they have, they draw near to the village and Jesus acts as if he's going to continue on though he has no real intention of leaving them. The two disciples urged Jesus to stay with them. I imagine there was something about their conversation that urged them to want to stay close. They probably couldn't have articulated it at the time. And so they just say, it's getting late. It's dark It's it's not really safe out there anymore. Just come in and stay with us. And so Jesus does. And this is where everything changes for these two. They sit down to have dinner. And an interesting note is that Jesus takes the place of host. Usually in this culture, the person who owns the house or the person that throws the party breaks the bread and gives the blessing. But here we see Jesus take this role he wants the two disciples to know him, to truly know him. They've already described who they thought Jesus was. He's already opened the scriptures and told them who he is, but none of that is enough. Intellectual understanding of gospel fact and even right biblical interpretation is not enough to truly see Jesus. God must open eyes and reveal himself. So Jesus takes the role of host. He breaks the bread, blesses it, and gives it to them. Now, we don't know if these two disciples were in the upper room at Jesus' last supper. They did just come from Jerusalem, so it's possible. But Jesus has done this many times with his disciples. And at that moment, the bread broken for you, everything changed. In that moment, they see Jesus for who he truly is. They know him for the first time since his death. Not only did they have the intellectual understanding of Jesus and his gospel, but now they had revelation. They had the experiential truth of meeting Jesus. And then he's gone. Can you imagine the emotions happening at this time? The scripture tells us that their eyes were opened, that they recognize him, and then he vanishes Jesus! Then he's gone. Jesus is alive? He's alive? No wonder our hearts burned when he opened the scriptures to us. It was Jesus speaking with us. It was Jesus. He's alive. The initiation by Jesus at the beginning of this narrative and his opening of the scriptures all start a work on their hearts, but is here at the table where their eyes are opened and they experience Jesus. They taste and see and everything changes. Jesus was dead and now he's alive. So what do they do? They tell people. The scripture says that at that same hour they rose and returned to Jerusalem. I like the way the NIV puts it. It says they got up and returned at once. Immediately, they wasted no time. They probably left their dinner plates on the table, but they had seen the risen Jesus. They had just walked seven miles from Jerusalem. They're probably tired, but they had just seen the risen Jesus. Their bellies are full, and you know you're not supposed to exercise so soon after eating, but now they're running back to Jerusalem, they had to get back and tell the disciples, it's true. Jesus is risen. It's true. The tomb is empty. The women saw it. The angels were right. He's alive. Even Peter went and saw him. He told us about it. Listen, we were walking on a road to Emmaus. We were talking with this guy about Jesus because he didn't know him. And then he opens the scriptures and blows our mind. It's all about Jesus. And then we sit down for supper, and he breaks bread, and it's him. Jesus is alive. They had an encounter with Jesus. They saw him for who he truly is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, their Redeemer, their Savior. And they have to tell someone. They have to share this good news that Jesus is alive, when we meet Jesus, we want to tell people and there's no time to wait. So in the second half of our passage, we see the last two movements of our liturgy here at Pillar Oki. At the table, we as the psalmist writes, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's where we meet Jesus and truly see him. It's an experiential remembrance of the cross. Jesus paying the ransom for our rebellion, our sin, and laying his life down that we may be redeemed and made righteous. And it's an experiential celebratory remembrance that he didn't stay dead. He reversed the curse of sin and death. He's alive and he's ruling and reigning forever. And we celebrate that gospel in song. Our last movement is the scattering. We have sung the gospel We have heard the gospel proclaimed, we have tasted the gospel, and so we go and we spread the gospel. Our benediction that we receive each week is given from scripture, it's normally given as a prayer and a call from God to go, and our response to that call starts when we stand up, turn around, and walk out of those doors. I started our time this morning with a story of our first worship gathering and I want to end it the same way. The only other song that I remember planning for that very first worship gathering was Missions Flame by Matt Redman. The song begins like this Let worship be the fuel for Missions Flame. We're going with a passion for your name. We're going because we care about your praise. Send us out. John Piper once famously said that missions exist because worship doesn't, but church worship does exist, but it's not always to our creator, Jesus Christ. Pillar, may we be a church that not just worships, but worships Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. This is who we are, Pillar Church of Okinawa. We exist to know Jesus and make him known. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of worship. May you lead us to be a people who know your son, Jesus, and make him known to each other, to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and the nations. Jesus, thank you for the remembrance of your cross at the table, that we may know who you truly are, our true God. Spirit, empower us to stay in your word mining its depths and seeing its hero, Jesus, making him the hero of our own lives, that we may not turn to idols, but glorify you, our triune God, in all that we are, all that we do, in all that we can ever become. This is all for your glory, Jesus, in your fame and your renown. Amen.